everybody. Welcome to another episode of DFV. Uh, I am your co-host, Black Cinephile. And I'm your co-host, Brad. That is Brad over there. And today we got a, we got a special one. Another one that we've kind of like had in the works for some time. But uh, we got a, a coming of age mashup here. Uh, both based on, um, you know, uh, acclaimed novels too. Uh, we got The Perks of Being a Wallflower versus Me and Earl and a Dying Girl. Yeah, both of these movies have actually been on my watch list for a while now. And mm. while going through like my movies that people have recommended and everything like that, these two popped out as like, oh, this is a perfect episode right here. It's two coming of age stories that take place mm-hmm. in a high school setting and involve people that are kind of growing into who they want to be. Yeah, so I had seen Perks of Being a Wallflower before, but uh, me and Earl, I'd um, I had never known that that film was really for me. So mm-hmm. I'd always kind of seen that film around. And I was like, eh, I don't know if that's, that movie is really for me. So that that's my um, this is my first time seeing this for this one. Yeah, this is the first time I've actually caught either of these movies. So and oh, okay. honestly, looking at it, it. It couldn't have made for a better mashup between the two because they do share a lot of similarities, which we'll get into. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. Um, Okay, Uh, you want to just head right into it? Yeah. And uh, I I know you're probably going to hate me for this one because you Uh don't like doing it. But I I got to suggest that we're going to do chronological. Come on, man. Seriously. I, I just think for this one. It, it works best. All right. All right, man. All right. We'll 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 tackle this experiment this time. OK, so that would start us off with the perks of being a wallflower. Uh, this one was directed by Stephen Shabosky and came out in 2012. It follows the story of Charlie, who is kind of an outcast going into high school where who he runs into two people, uh, Sam and Patrick, who are stepbrother and stepsister that are seniors in high school. And he kind of starts to float into their friend group as he sees Patrick kind of be a class clown in his woodshop class and is somebody mm-hmm. that's more approachable than other people. So following this he kind of gets intertwined in that group and starts to find himself meanwhile he has little panic episodes where he kind of blacks out where things from his past keep getting brought up and kind of throwing him into these zones where he's not in the most comfortable place and Mm -hmm. this mixed in with the relationships that he's forming with the different friends in this group kind of bring a great kind of coming of age story that I think for the most part, most people can relate to in some sense when it comes to the relationships between the different people in the group. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it comes to bare bones, that's this movie. It's, it's a very solid down to earth kind of coming of age story. It doesn't have any insane plots that make you go, Oh, that's never going to happen. The characters feel realistic the way that, you know, Patrick and Sam, you know, kind of banter back and forth together as like stepbrother and stepsister feels realistic. They also like clash in personality a little bit where it's like, oh, yeah, if they weren't family in some regard, they wouldn't have been around each other at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
And same with all the other friends groups where they basically this group has been friends since kindergarten. So they have a lot of history with each other. And then Charlie kind of just comes in out of nowhere and he has to kind of get an idea of everybody's personalities and all the inside jokes that they have with each other. Mm -hmm. So while being a part of the friends group, he's still kind of an outcast to the group because he doesn't know the group's history. He doesn't know all the jokes they have, everything that they do together, everything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, that's pretty much it there. Uh, so this was your first time seeing this movie. Yes. This was the first time that I got to catch this movie. Okay, this is more like my second time. Uh, first time I saw this was in college, and they, they had like a free screening on campus, mm-hmm. and that's where I saw this movie. Um, yeah, I know I know we can't talk about this person without talking about the problematic stuff, but we can just kind of skip that for this episode because that, that's going to be a whole other subject. Um, we'll talk about it when we talk about The Flash. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I wanted to say, dude, uh, this was the first film where I kind of like, um, not where I first noticed Ezra Miller, but this was a great role for Ezra Miller. I feel like this like like was was like their breakout role. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Ezra Miller did an absolutely phenomenal job as Patrick in this movie. And it, it goes to show that it, they have great talent when it comes mm-hmm. to their acting ability because throughout the movie, as Patrick, he goes through as this I, I don't want to say that he plays kind of like the goofy side character in this movie because yeah. he I does mean, have some depth is, to him yeah. Yeah, right right he's more than just being the class clown like he's introduced right. as the class clown and as the story progresses you kind of see that he doesn't want that to be what people know him for because he starts yeah. off by kind of goofing off in the wood shop class and everything and I love his yeah. line when he's talking to the teacher, like when he's turning in his project and teacher's like, really? Because it's terrible. And he goes, remember, mm-hmm. if you fail me, you get me again next year. <laughs> and he ends up getting a C minus on it. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, he yeah. has a lot of charisma in that regard. And Ezra Miller Absolutely. brings that to the role. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of charisma with that role. Uh, I really like Logan Lerman as uh, the lead role as well as mm-hmm. Charlie. Uh, I feel like uh, he he does a terrific job. Um, I like Emma Watson um, in her role as uh, she, she was Sam, right? Yes. Yeah, she was the stepsister for Patrick. I liked her as Sam. The only thing was I heard I heard the accent. I heard the, the British accent at many times. Was it was it just <laughs> me or did you hear it too sometimes? It, it does come out a couple times in the movie, but it's not distractingly there right it's just kind of like you know that she has a british accent normally so when you hear her talk without it it, you kind of Mm. hear it slip in and it just kind of makes you go oh yeah british okay it it doesn't make me go oh the performance is ruined (laughs) no i don't think it's ruined it's just i i hear the british emma watson i'm like yeah yeah british um Mm -hmm. but i want to say this has a pretty solid cast here man i like how we got uh we got Paul Rudd in a very low-key role as mm-hmm. Mr. Anderson. Uh, Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. <laughs> I had to. I had to. Uh, uh, we got Nina Dobrieve as uh, as his sister, Candace. We got Mae Whitman as Mary. Like We got a pretty Dylan McDermott as the father. Um, 
Kate Walsh as the mother. We got a pretty solid cast here. Well, even at the end, you have Joan Cusack come out of nowhere as a therapist for Mm -hmm. Charlie. And then you also have Mae Whitman as Mary Elizabeth, who uh, she is also in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World as Roxy Richer. That's how I know her best. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, yeah, pretty solid cast here. And um, I was going to say, when I saw this movie, I didn't know what to expect from it because it's like, I feel like the peak of great coming of age films. And it's not even coming of age because it all takes place within like, within a few hours is The Breakfast Club to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I love The Breakfast Club. Um, but I feel like that was like peak coming of age to me, which is funny because it only lasts within the span of a few hours with, within the world of the film. Right. Yeah. But like everything past that, I'm like, OK, that that dude's trying to be a, um, trying to be the jock from the Breakfast Club. That woman's trying to be the pretty girl that has, uh, you know, issues from the Breakfast Club. Like 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 that's how that's how much John Hughes films kind of like, you know, made me go, OK, this is the pinnacle. Anything else is just trying to reach up to this. So when I saw this film, I kind of had low expectations. But when I fi- finished it, I was like, man, that was a very that was a very well done movie. Like, I understood those characters. You know right. what I mean? And um, it made me go like, OK, high school was kind of like a shared, unique experience. Everyone has their thing of whether they were the jock, they were the nerd, they were the geek. They were kind of like the outcast. And I like that. You know, this main character, we can we can draw a parallel to to the main character of the next film we're talking about. I like how we see everything kind of like within his worldview and and understand high school through his eyes. Right. Yeah, because he doesn't fall within one of the groups. He's kind of in that outcast group that doesn't have a group of its own where he's kind of just floating around in this new environment where he's realizing the people he knew from middle school don't want to interact with him. The people that he knows that go to the same high school don't really want to interact with him. So he's in this ground where he just had to find his own group and he ended up just falling in with the seniors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, when you're going from that right there, what I want to say about, um, you know, uh, this film is that, uh, you know, I like the dynamic between, the, between these three characters. You, you know... Emma Watson's character Sam is is a love interest, and you know mm-hmm. there's the trope of like he can never get her. You know she's not in love with them. He's just a friend to her, and you, you know that trope. But I like how the film plays the trope well. Like it doesn't like subvert to like uh, will they, won't they? Oh, um, you know she's just not interested. And in the last moment, oh surprise, she's interested. I like how it plays it pretty well. Well, it kind of plays throughout the entire movie as she's interested, he's interested, but he won't make the move. And somebody else makes the move on her, so she ends up dating that person. And it creates the awkwardness. She was already dating him. Was she already dating Craig at the beginning? Yeah, I think think her and Craig were already uh, involved. Oh, okay. Um, Because I remember that he was planning to ask her out on, like, New Year's Eve or something. I, I think you may be right, but I think she, she kind of already had Craig at that point. Or she oh, okay. had Craig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Um, the uh, interesting thing about this movie, man, you know the man who uh, wrote and directed it, uh, Stephen uh, uh, Chbosky, wrote the original novel. Oh, did he actually write the original novel, too? He, he did. 
it's oh, kind I didn't of realize comedy. that. Yeah, it's it's not um it's not often you get the the author of the original work writing and directing the adaptation. Um, because the novel was written in 1999. This is made in 2012. He had always meant to adapt it for film, but he didn't like rush it. So um, when he finally did sell the rights, um, to the production company Mr. Mutt Productions, they let him write and direct it. Oh yeah, because he also directed Dear Evan Hansen as well. The kind of musical coming of age movie from 2021. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to say man for um I think this was his directorial debut here. It's a pretty well-directed film. Uh more or less, it looks like he also directed a movie called The Four Corners of Nowhere, but I think that might have been a short film based on what I'm seeing here. Oh, you know what? You know what? This isn't a directorial debut. Um, well, I don't you know. This this might be a short film here. But even even that, like um, with with someone, usually when someone's adapting their own story, yeah, they mm-hmm. can see it best, right? But sometimes they the they they can't see the forest through the trees, and the, and the so something that plays well in in novel format doesn't always play well in cinematic format. So you kind of have that disconnect. Um, this film this film plays very well the way it does. Mm-hmm. Oh, especially when it's cutting between it playing like it's it, Charlie as the narrator telling the story mm-hmm. as well through writing these letters. And we're kind of just seeing everything play out that he's writing in these letters. And we even get to see the scene where he gets the typewriter that he's typing all these letters on that we're watching play out. Mm-hmm. So it, it definitely adapts from the book very well in that regard in kind of making it seem like a story that's written out and being narrated to you without it being just a direct, oh, and then this happened, and then this happened. We get to actually see everything unfold while getting intertwined on little bits of narration for scenes that just wouldn't make sense for a film. Mm-hmm, hmm Yeah, absolutely. And I like how, as the film goes on, you know... um, I, yeah, I like the way it plays with narration and uh, perspective because, you know, we this whole time we think, you know, um, uh, who, who was it? Aunt Helen kind of had a car accident mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, that that was kind of it. Right. We we didn't. We, he just misses his Aunt Helen. As the film goes on, we realize he blocked out a lot of memories that his Aunt Helen, you know, uh, sexually abused him. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first saw that in theaters and I was like, whoa, that's an intense emotional twist. Yeah, that kind of, it almost comes out of nowhere, I can say, on the first viewing. I don't know if on the second viewing it's a little bit more obvious with some of the cues, because throughout the movie, he cuts to kind of little flashbacks of him remembering things about her, and he Mm -hmm. especially remembers things about her, and he kind of just blanks out and everything. And it's interpreted that he's just getting these lapses in memory there, and it's just kind of freaking him out a bit that he feels bad about her death when in reality it's more of a suppressed memory kind of notion and i I don't know if it comes off a little bit different on a second watch no it 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 still plays his hand like it it still plays his hand close to his chest i mean you you do you do hear his brother like say to him like hey are you are you doing okay today are you doing okay on this christmas day like Mm -hmm. are you still having like um like, I, I don't know. I don't know what they. I don't know the way they call it. Like, uh, do they do they ask him, "Are you here right now?" Or yeah, are, are you, you doing... having blackouts? Right, right. So it doesn't reveal the big reveal the second time around. 
But like I say, it does come out of nowhere. But at the same time, it makes sense compared to people who have repressed memories that block things out. Mm-hmm. Like you'd be amazing how many things you can block out with your mind. Oh yeah. Like you, you really would be amazed at that. And um, it, it makes sense that you know when it comes out of nowhere to him, it comes out of nowhere to us, but not in a hmm. Let me write a big emotional twist out of nowhere here. Just let see if it sticks to the wall. It's like, no, no, that that makes sense because we're looking at all this through his eyes. Yeah, it all fits the story. It's not that, oh, man, we got to get a Shyamalan level twist in here to really tug at right. you at the end. It, it falls into place very well. And especially when he's having that last episode toward the end of the movie where you know sam and patrick have moved to college he's basically lost his entire friends group he's back alone at home his Mm -hmm. sister's off his brother's out his parents are gone and he just has an episode and he ends up calling his sister and she picks up the phone is like hey what's going on what why are you calling me right now you you know i'm busy and he's like well you, you know aunt helen i i think it might be my fault and I, I think I wanted mm-hmm. it, too. And she immediately, like, knows what's going on. And it's like, somebody call the cops and have them go to the house right now. Like, this is serious. Mm-hmm. Right. I love that cut, too, where you mm-hmm. uh you, 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 you get a blackout and you see, you see a foot kick down the door. Like, yep. I, I love that smash cut. Yeah. And then he wakes up in the hospital or in the therapist's room. And mm-hmm. he immediately is going, where am I? I, I got to get back home. I, I got I got stuff I got to do. You know, I got to get home. And, you know, that's where we see, uh, you know, Joan Cusack come out of nowhere and be like, right. no, no, it's it's OK. You're, you're safe here. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, absolutely. I um I wanted to say the one thing about this movie that kind of it doesn't irk me, but I kind of go, really? Like, like, Really? When they're in the car and they hear uh, David Bowie's Heroes. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, even if you don't know what, what David Bowie song you're, you're listening to, I'm, listen, I'm looking at this. I'm like, do these kids really not know who David Bowie is? Like, you got to like keep in mind, this is happening in the like very early 90s. And these are still high school kids. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is nice. I didn't even know this was a film set in the past. I thought this was uh present 2020 2012 no there's a couple oh, okay. like uh I, I guess i noticed them a little bit because when it comes to a set piece like once you notice one piece the cassette everything oh. keeps coming into play with it yeah like the cassettes for one like the vinyl records and the mini vinyls which were huge in the mid 90s and all those little things and you start like catching on to like what songs are in this okay i remember those songs from my childhood oh i remember that okay there's the sign that i recognize at this store oh look they're using the old pepsi logo you know <laughs> you catch on to those things ca- i didn't even catch on to that i i thought like okay these are these are just hipster kids mm-hmm. like, and i'm like what kind of hipster kids doesn't know david don't know david bowie like you know like yeah. like i still and even then it's the 90s. You're telling me you don't know who David Bowie is? At the same time, though, it, it everybody has to discover something for the first time. I give him a slide on that one of just like hearing it and being like, oh, my God, this is my jam. And not exactly knowing because it was the radio days. There was no way to look that up. You know, these kids, they even say to him at one point, hey, um, do you like the Smiths? Yeah, I like the Smiths. Do you like such and such? Uh, yeah. 
Like, you know that's a you know that's a record store, right? Right. Yeah. You're telling me, you telling me the many times they go to that record store, they never ran into David Bowie not once. Unlikely, but possible. <laughs> Come on, no, I don't, I don't buy that. It's it's a great tunnel song, as they call mm-hmm. it, but. Come on, they know who David Bowie is. But yeah, yeah, that one didn't really bother me too much with that. I wasn't kind of like suspended in disbelief for that because at the same time, there's been times where I've heard songs like uh, by the Foo Fighters and I've gone, who's that? And then somebody's like, that's the Foo Fighters. Like, oh, yeah, that is the Foo Fighters. Like once you mention it, you catch on to it. Yeah, but these are like hipster. I don't want to say hipster because it is the 90s. Right. These are like. It's in time. They're not hipsters yet. It'd be hipsters if it was like <laughs> the mid 2010s and they were listening to all this music. If you know the Smiths, how you not going to know who? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But uh, I, I hear what you're saying. But um, yeah, man, overall, dude, I think this is just a well executed film here. I, I love it. Oh, absolutely. It, yeah. And, it, um, it, you know, it's the perks of being a wallflower. It's the perks of like observing everything as Charlie does in, um, you know, in his world. And, uh, yeah, I thought it was very well done. And I, this, is, this is a straight five, five out of five to me. Oh, very easily. Uh, I was basically yeah. going through the movie in my head and everything like that. It's like, I don't think I have a single complaint on this. Like, not mm-hmm. a single, even like minute complaints where you kind of have the David Bowie thing. I didn't have anything like that, where it was like it, the entire movie just feels naturally flowing. The direction is good on it. The writing's good. The dialogue is good. The way that the characters interact and you kind of see everything from Charlie's perspective is great. Uh, Even the kind of stuff between Ezra Miller's character going on as uh, a gay student and everything like that, like his story Mm -hmm. and trying to hide that relationship and then it being found out and him dealing with those consequences and everything. It, everything feels very natural in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, all right, five out of five. Uh, uh, top notch. Top notch DFV film right yeah, here. Th- this one gets the double star of approval for um, DFV. The very rare absolutely. double star approval. <laughs> it is rare, isn't it? It's rare that we do this. Um, all right, let's on to the next one. Yeah, and that leads us to our next one here. We got 2015, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, uh, directed by Alfonso Gomez uh, Rejon. I I I hope that's how I say his last name. And uh, written by Jesse Andrews, who, uh, you know, wrote the novel that the film is based off of. All right, so this one here, uh, we got an interesting one here. So we got this film that um, we got a a young man by the name of Greg. Um, He learns that... um, his mother's uh, friend, um, he learns that his mother's friend's daughter, who he goes to school with, is um, is terminally ill with cancer, leukemia. Her name is Rachel. Um, Greg uh, has a, a co-worker, not a best friend, but a co-worker uh, by the name of Earl. Uh, him and Earl have been like, you know, very tight since the, uh, you know, the young age of, um, you know, like kindergarten, whatever. more or like, less. Like kindergarten. Yeah, kindergarten. Uh, they watch a lot of art films with um, Greg's dad, played by Nick Offerman. And uh, based on these art films, uh, these uh, these these classic films, they've made they make parodies out of them, and they've been doing that ever since um, up to now when they're in high school. So um, as Greg hangs out with Rachel, 
uh, they start to uh, gain a great friendship. You know, it's a it's a friendship uh, based on, uh, you know, sarcasm, dry humor and uh, pretty much just like centered around like, you know, just um, having fun together. Uh, you know, Greg first starts off like saying, hey, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to hang out with this girl without bringing up the C word or whatever like that. And, you know, Rachel is very straightforward. And the C word being cancer, of course. <laughs> Right, of course. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, cancer. Um, but I'm saying like in his terms, in his mind, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, Greg is interesting. He's similar to the main character from the perks of a, being a wallflower. Like, actually, he's a little different from him because he has like managed to like fit himself into every social group in high school as a strategic plan to stay invisible at the same time mm-hmm. by seamlessly phoning in with the jocks, the nerds, the goths um the theater majors and everyone else while seemingly at the same time becoming invisible so basically becoming invisible to bullies or anything like that and uh just sailing on uh and basically the way this plot goes is you know greg having a um gaining a deeper love for uh rachel as um you know time goes on and rachel makes a, a very shocking important decision regarding her treatment that mm-hmm. um you know puts a wedge in um, his friendship with Earl and puts a wedge in his uh, whole life, pretty much. And that pretty much is the bare bones plot of me and Earl and a dying girl. Um, so this was both of our first watches here to, for, for this movie. Yeah. So this one, again, it's been on my to watch list for a while now. I want to say almost since this one came out, it's been on my watch list. Mm. And it's one of those movies that I think you kind of mentioned you weren't sure if it was for you and everything like that. And for me, it's the name of the movie, you know, me and Earl and the dying girl is it definitely comes off as kind of one of those like sappy romance kind of movies based on the title and everything. And I knew it was a coming of age movie, but at Mm. the same time, it doesn't play as a romance at all, which kind of struck me as odd based on the title and everything yeah like i was going into this expecting like a sad romance and everything like that instead i got a very sad friendship movie that definitely tugged at the heartstrings in the same way as a romance would you know and and i think yeah and i think that's a magic trick of this film Mm -hmm. you know because you don't see that a lot because when you when you have a movie the way this movie starts off too and we'll talk about it he goes like um like, hey, you know, um, if this is a romance film, her and I will become very close right here. But that's not what happened. We just we just chilled out and just, you know, ate some snacks and just watched TV. Like, and, you know, he says like, oh, I I, I know you think she's going to die at the end, but she pulls through. She survives. Trust me. Yeah. Like, like, like the, the narration that happens in this film, it goes like, listen to me, this is not a romance film. Yeah. Almost to the point where I'm expecting like this is going to become a romance film. Right. As soon as it started like going, yeah, it's it's not a romance movie. She's going to live at the end. It's like there's no way she lives at the end. First off. So this is definitely a romance. You're lying to me on two counts here, movie. How dare you? Because, you know, that's going to hurt more after you keep saying, no, no, it's it's okay. It's not a romance and she's not going to die. Everybody lives. Chapter two, the doomed friendship. God damn it. I know what you're doing to me, movie. (laughs) Right, the dude friendship. I love that. And you know, the thing is, this movie pays homage to a lot of art films that they parody. That, that oh, um, yeah. you know, Earl and um, I want to get the main character's name right, Earl and Greg parody. Mm-hmm. But like the film plays off like an art film itself. Like, I love that. 
you know, like like this is a I, this is definitely an indie movie, but it plays off. Um, it's very artful in the way it moves, similar to the art films that they that the two characters uh, make parodies of. Yeah, the direction in this movie is probably one of the best parts of this movie. If yeah. I had to like narrow it down and be like, what's your favorite aspect of this movie? The characters are great. The dialogue's great. The story overall is great. But the directing and the style of the directing and the way that it does flash cuts and moves to different mm-hmm. styles of like movies and everything, that is so, you know beyond everything else in this movie that it stands out on its own that it makes me want to go what else has this director done and what else am i missing out on Hmm. yeah yeah absolutely like um and this is a compliment i'm not saying it's a knockoff a lot of this film kind of kind of gave me like a wes anderson like feel to it and that that's again that's a, a, a little compliment. bit yes yeah yeah, like, and I'm not saying like it's a Wes Anderson knockoff by any means. I think it's a well done movie, but like, I, I felt like a lot of like like Wes Anderson t- uh, hat tips and some transitions and things like of that nature. But I, um, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that it'll cut to like the moose and the chipmunk kind of thing, and that's very Wes right. Anderson in style. The subtitles, yeah, you know I mean? the certain cuts, uh, yeah, how 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 the fighting is staged in, in some scenes. Like I'm like that's like a that's like a Wes Anderson type of feel, but like his own specific, this this director's mm. own specific kind of style too. It, it, I would not um, be surprised if he was heavily inspired by Wes Anderson to become a director, because he it definitely has that touch of somebody that really likes Wes Anderson and went into directing themselves. Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Um, there's a there's a lot of uh, influences in this film too, besides Wes. But uh, like looking at this film, man, I love the way it sets itself up. Like I love the intro montage where Greg is like, you know, I have strategically fit myself in with every popular group uh, to make myself, um, you know, invisible at the same time. Like I like how when he passes the theater majors, like, hey, how was your summer? Like you know, oh, summer. What's the point of that word? More yeah, summer. What does that even mean? <laughs> They start laughing like, ah, Greg, you're so funny. And I like how when he runs into um the one girl who was like the moose to his, uh, wait, what's the other animal? Uh, chipmunk. Chipmunk. Uh, yeah, uh, she, uh, uh, her name, her name wasn't Rachel. It was something else. It was Naomi. Uh, no, her name was. Madison. Yes. Was Madison. Yeah. So Madison's the hot girl, right? So every time she comes up in like, you know. Like talks to him, you get you get a um you get a v- image of a moose stepping on a chipmunk, meaning like you know hot girls step over whoever they wh- whoever uh whoever they can uh I don't know. Well, not the analogy them. was that it, hot girls are kind of like a moose, while right. everybody else is like a chipmunk. They don't realize yeah. it, but they're trampling over your life without any care or need to know. Because to them, they're just walking through the forest and don't realize that they're killing people along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so I like that. And I like how that plays into a uh, form later on. Like the one moment uh, the moose steps down, the chipmunk moves out the way. And by this point, Greg is a little pissed. Mm-hmm. He's pissed that Rachel doesn't want to fight for her life. He's pissed at a lot of other things. And she goes, hey, how's the movie? Or like, hey, can you do me a favor? He's like, no. No, I can't. I want you to leave me alone. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not I'm not a chipmunk. And 
it's not that he's unjustified in the way he feels because he's really just channeling his anger at the wrong person. Right. But you get it at the same time. It's like it's like, no, I'm not I'm not going to inform you about the movie. And yeah. I don't care what your thoughts are. Yeah, because he sees this movie. He's not so much doing the movie for Rachel, who the movie is for. He's doing it because Madison asked him to do it. And this movie has caused him to kind of lose on his academics because he's been so focused on doing it. It's mm. caused him to lose Rachel in a way because she kind of doesn't really see him as much due to him working on the movie so much. He fights with Earl on making the movie perfect and everything and loses Earl in the process as a friend. And it kind of just disrupts his entire life in making this movie that she asked him to make. I would disagree. I feel like he was making the film for, it started out for Madison, but Mm -hmm. I feel like he, in the process, he was making it for Rachel to the point, to the point where he wasn't really seeing the the forest through the trees. And he he lost the one thing that was kind of important, which was to spend more time with Rachel. That's kind of how I would argue it. But I don't think he realizes he's making it for Rachel until after she says that she's going to stop treatment. That's, I think, when it clicks that he was making the movie for her and he wasn't making it because Madison had asked him to. Hmm. Okay, it's a fair point. It's a fair point. I I, I, I can see it from that interpretation, too. Um, what I wanted to say was uh, I like John Bernthal as uh, Mr. McCarthy. Oh, yeah, as the teacher. How, <laughs> right. And now every time he's with them and they're hanging out with him during lunch, he's like, fact, I am going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. Uh, every time he announces himself to uh you know Greg and Earl, he's like heathens. And he goes, uh, what do they what do they say? Do your research or what do you something what do they like say? that? I can't remember what they're saying was. But yeah, research they, is key. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. I also love the kind of like subplot that happens where they try the soup that he's eating and they think that he drugged the soup. And mm-hmm. so they're going through. And I love how the entire sequence is them being like we got to do something so nobody thinks that we're suspicious and so they go to rachel's house and then bring her out for ice cream because they're like yeah we're we're high on drugs right now how well it, it's complicated see we were heating soup because you know our teacher well no he he gave us the place to go get the soup from so we went all the way there to get the soup and then we got hotboxed in the elevator with this guy that was selling drugs that happened to be next to the soup place and this whole convoluted story. And she's like, wow, you guys have had a busy day. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, what I wanted to say was, um, man, I was about to I was about to bring up something. Not not Molly Shannon's. I, it'll come to me. But uh, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I, I like that whole subplot there as well. But um, I like oh the cafeteria scene, I love this scene so much because I've been there. Um, like the moment where he's sitting next to uh Rachel, and then you know uh Madison sits in between him and Rachel, and things oh, get yes. complicated. You can see things get complicated in Greg's head, and so he th- he thinks of like an escape plan to like you know um kind of divert. <laughs> Listen, a-, a lot of a lot of a lot of boys say dumb things, mm-hmm. so she she's got this pillow as like a fake baby. Um um. Madison does. He's like, uh, can I set this here? You guys think this is going to be okay? And then Greg says, oh, you know, I, I might masturbate on it. Mm-hmm. And it's like such a 
So why would you say that? It's a callback joke to one that he's made with Rachel before. It's literally the the exact definition of I accidentally use group A's humor while in group B. (laughs) Oh, I didn't even catch that. I didn't even catch that he made that type of joke before because I thought he just said that out of left field. No, it was literally something like when uh, he first went to Rachel's house and everything. And one of his comments was, man, you have like just so many pillows. And he's like trying to break the awkwardness after being like, my mom told me I had to come hang out with you. That's the only reason I'm here. And then he was doing the whole Uh-oh. like, you got so many pillows. My mom would never let me have these many pillows. This one here, this reminds me of a pillow I used to have named Francesca. I remember you know? that. And I had the, the, you know, our love just wasn't understood at the time and everything like that. <laughs> And that was a callback oh. to that. Like it was a joke he had with Rachel and basically it obviously didn't click with everybody else because Rachel's leaving laughing at it after he says it at the table and he quickly That's realizes he screwed up and I, I didn't catch that. Yeah. Okay. So That's it, the joke. It, it's okay. literally the exact definition of I accidentally use group A's humor while with group B. <laughs> okay. Now I totally get that. And the one moment I wanted to say that I connected to was like right after when he realizes, okay, panic mode. Let me let me make fun of the walk of that goth kid I hang out with. And mm-hmm. then he like, gains the enemy in 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 the goth kid. Cause everyone's like, oh man, that was so rude. Why did you uh, cause Madison's like, that was rude, Greg. Why did you say that? Mm-hmm. And then in a moment to avoid social awkwardness, he kind of just like like he runs just away. runs away. <laughs> I've been in a moment like that. Like we've all been in a moment where like to avoid social awkwardness, you kind of just you either put your head down and turn around or you just like kind of just kind of like distance yourself a bit. I, I, I really, I really uh, empathize with that moment. Oh yeah. Oh, you can feel it for the most part. Yeah. Like this movie does a great job of making you feel the emotions that the characters are going through it, mm-hmm. because it does a great job of showing and not telling you how people feel. And that comes down to the great performances by the actors and everything, especially when it comes to Olivia Cook as Rachel, when it comes to everything she's going through with the cancer treatments and everything like that, where she's silent and she's not going, oh, man, I feel so awkward being here. You know, I feel so strange being in the presence of other people and everything. You you can just see it on her. Mm hmm. And when she kind of like breaks down a little bit, it's like she's not so much telling at that point what she's going through. She's now having to explain it to Greg, who is completely void of it. But we as the audience can already tune into everything she's going through. Yeah, absolutely. And um, another thing I wanted to mention was uh, uh, towards the end, like this, like, like, here's the thing I like when the film starts off, it says, um, Hey, I made a short film with my friend that happened to actually kill a girl. Mm-hmm. You know, I love it when a film teases you in the beginning, you know, because uh, I'm like, I was like, oh, how, how did the film end up killing a girl? And is it the same girl we're talking about? So going from that and when the film goes on, because uh, I want I want to touch on that a little bit. But um, when when him and Earl fought, fought, fell out, like I, I really felt that. Mm-hmm. And any other movie like this, I probably wouldn't have like felt so emotionally attached like that. But I was like, you know, when Earl kind of punched him, you know, I was a little angry and sad at the same time. I was like, these guys are supposed to be best friends and they're fighting literally over nothing. Right. Like, like, like I, I really got mad watching that scene. I'm like, they're fighting over nothing. They're they're best friends. Like, you know, like um, they're more than co-workers, you know, they're partners in crime. And uh, 
when they when they fell out, I was a little sad. Uh, and I feel like that that was the movie kind of uh, being very effective. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you can see it from both their perspectives. It, you're mad at Greg for literally getting upset that Earl told Rachel they were making a movie. That's why he's mad at Earl, because this was supposed to be a secret thing in his eyes when in reality it, it didn't need to be. And on the flip side, Earl's mad at Greg because Greg keeps acting like everything is his story when it's not. Not, not everything is about him. He acts like he's the main character in everything, even though he's doing this for somebody that has cancer. He acts like he's the one that the movie is for. Mm, that's a, hey, that's another interesting take. I, well, I looked at it as I kind of understood Greg being upset. Like, mm. I, I kind of understood him being you upset at Earl. kind of understand both of them, but you get that they're yeah. both upset for more or less the same stupid reason, just from two right. different perspectives on it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it is. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you're going from that and then um, <laughs> I love the conversation in the end when the one kid that's always rhyming words, but he's horrible at rapping. Oh, yeah. Uh, he finally confronts Greg like uh, like I will beat you up. And, you know, they start having a stupid fight. And then, you know, Earl comes in and beats him up. The, the guy that's trying to beat up Greg. Um I like that. I thought, I thought that was a nice little like 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 stupid confrontation there. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to say I wanted to um, even when Madison says to him, like, hey, do you want to go to prom with me? Or like, hey, j- just come to the dance with me, whatever, like dance they're having. And he goes, like, is this is this pity? He says, no, just come to the dance with me. Mm-hmm. I like that the film subverts your expectations because I expected him to at least go and right. then catch back up with Rachel afterwards. But I like the fact that he's in the limo and at the whole in the whole time he he stops himself off at, at the hospital to go see Rachel. And uh dude, I just this whole sequence, man, it was just very emotional, man. Oh, it tugs when at it, you. It immediately yeah. starts tugging at you the second he walks through the hospital door and it's like, oh god damn, I don't like this scene. Make it stop. Can it can this scene end? No, not like that. Please, no, not like that. That's not what I meant. Stop it. <laughs> right, right. So he goes in there, right? And he, he's finally showing her the movie. Like, um, you know, he uh, in his mind, it's always unfinished. It's always unfinished. But he finally shows it to her. And she's, she's so emotional watching it that, you know, you know she literally she literally passes right there. Mm. And, oh, man, it's a, it's an emotional moment, man, because it's like um, the movie lied to you and told you, yeah, she survives in the end. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, hey. And I'm like, dude, why did you lie to us? Like, well, like, why'd you lie? Yeah. Why are you doing this to me? Isn't it torture enough that she dies in the end? Not that the entire movie you're going, no, no, don't worry. She she lives. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh that was intense, man. That was a very intense climax there. Right. And then to add like insult to injury. When it comes to this movie, you have the entire interaction that John Bernthal has with, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember what his character's name was. uh, Mr. McCarthy that Mr. McCarthy has with Greg prior to this, where he's kind of realizes that she stopped taking the treatments and he's talking to Greg and going, look, when somebody dies, it doesn't mean that's the end of their story. Because you can always learn mm. more things about that person past their death. 
and he uses an example of like his dad passed away when he was at a young age and talking right. to some of his dad's best friends he came to know things about his dad that he never knew so mm-hmm. to pick up on that after you know she passes on greg starts kind of going in her room and everything like that and connecting all these dots of little things that she had mentioned or her mom had mentioned like the scissors and cutting up books he finds out that she didn't just cut up books and everything like that she made art out of those books by doing like the hollowed out kind of depths of the pages and everything like that to make these kind of uh what's the word for it not portraits but uh blanking on the word for it right now uh moments of life yeah moments Uh, of life but i'm trying to remember what that artwork is called where it's like the 3d kind of there's a word for it no no paper mache is like where you wet the paper and put it over a mold but it it, it's diorama diorama she she makes dioramas out of the books and everything from moments of her life and you can see that some of them are even moments that she had with Greg. So it's mm. it's another one of those things where it's like, God, movie, you already stop it. <laughs> My heart can only take so much. And see, I didn't. Oh, go yeah, on. You, you caught on a lot of things to this movie. I didn't catch on, man. Like I saw the art in the end and I looked at that as like, oh, OK, she was an artist, too, mm-hmm. that we didn't we didn't really catch on to that. But the fact that that connected to what Mr. McCarthy said, like, do you. You know, just because they die doesn't mean you, you stop learning things about them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, because then earlier in the movie as well, you had when they're interviewing her mom and they're going, did she have a favorite toy? And it was like scissors, because as soon as her dad left, she started cutting up her, you know, father's books. And I was like, yeah, you go, girl, and everything like that. And you think in your head, you're thinking, oh, yeah, she took scissors and she just started cutting up the books. You don't think, oh, she was making art out of it. And then when you see the art she made, like the one with the polar bear is a reference to when he was making the uh, reference saying, you know, the polar bear is the most emotional animal in the animal kingdom when it comes to the noises it can make and everything where Mm. he's trying to like cheer her up. I can't remember what scene in the movie it was, but I remember he was like just making like, oh, kind of noises and going, it's a polar bear. I remember, yeah, yeah. And there was another one of the dioramas. I'm trying to remember what it was that was another tie to something. And then you had the tie to the squirrel, you know, trying to run away and be a squirrel in the trees and everything. That was a reference to, you know, something else that she had in her room that was like a squirrel kind of object that you can always see. And Mm. then you have like the scissors on her wall and everything. And all these things in her room start tying together in this perfect way as he's like discovering them for the first time, even though he's been in this room every day for the last at least six months or so. Right. Yeah. And it's the first time he's actually opening his eyes to see Rachel as a person that isn't just somebody he's forced to hang out with because she has cancer. Well, I think we were well past that point at this point. You know, he, he, yeah, more or less, but at the same time, he never took his surroundings in when it came to everything around her. He he still just saw her as a girl with cancer. He didn't see anything else about her. And it still all falls in with the way that he groups people where he's like, oh, these are the jocks. These are these people. You're in Jewish girls that are boring group B. 
you know, is what he like classifies her as. So <laughs> it, it goes into that where he doesn't see people as people because he doesn't want to get close to them. And he finally starts adapting and like learning about her and realizing everything about her based on her room that he's always been in that he just never saw before. You, you know what I love uh, when they first meet? Uh, it we we it's indirectly too when uh she was like you know I just got my test back he he just walks by like oh yeah test tell me about it yeah <laughs> and I love the cut back the call back because like uh when you first see that shot everyone's looking confused like what did he just say mm-hmm. but you know like then you understand with the call back like oh that's why everybody looks so confused when he said that um. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, I, I like this movie, man. I feel like it's a it's a strong film about friendship and uh, loss. Uh, the anti-romance thing, it really stuck to his guns about that. And I, I was did. surprised. Yeah, I was definitely expecting this to go like a romantic turn. But even in the end, it still stuck with just a friendship. It never got down to like him going, oh, I really loved her or something like that. It was just he lost one of the only friends he had which he doesn't like making friends because he's afraid of losing friends. And Mm -hmm. in turn, one of the only friends that he actually made is one that he lost permanently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, this is a a strong 4.5 to me. This one's another 5 out of 5 to me. Like, I I can't think Mm. of anything wrong with this movie. I love the callbacks to it. I love the editing to it, the direction style, the characters, the acting. Everything is just out, out of this world for this movie. It, it hmm. subverted so many of my expectations for it that I went into this one going, okay, this is going to be an average movie. And it just blew everything I was expecting out of the water. Yeah, I don't... I'm not going to look at this one as perfect. I look at it as near perfect because, I mean, I don't know. I just like some films, it's like you you want to give it that high, high spot. But in your mm-hmm. mind, it's like, nah, if I'm going to be honest with myself, it, it's it, it's it's right below that that high, high spot. But I, I, I do hold it in high regard. So I, I, I got I got a 4.5 on this one. Yeah, I, I think this one deserves the full five. It's it very easily it, one of those movies to me. Okay, okay, awesome, awesome. All right, so, uh, I mean, I know where I lean here, but if we were going to pick, if you're going to pick which one wins out to you, what what do you got? Uh, This one's going to be Perks of Being a Wallflower still wins out between these two movies. But obviously, I still put Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl in very high regard. It's, It's a very close one between these two movies. But if it came down to me going... If somebody came up to me and was like, I can only watch one of these two movies, which should I watch? Perks of Being a Wallflower. Mm-hmm. That it, I wouldn't even second guess it. I would just recommend that as the first one that they should watch. And if they really like that movie, go watch Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl after. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would uh, I would probably say the same thing, to be honest with you. But uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I enjoy both of these films, and I got to give it to Perks as well. Um, all right, man, heading into after show. So, uh, I know you've been watching Barry. I know that's your show. Mm-hmm. What, what else you, what else you've been checking out, man? So I've actually started watching the new Jenny Tartoski kind of, uh, show, uh, Unicorn Princess. I'm trying to remember. Oh, yeah, I heard what about the, that. 
it's yeah. actually pretty good. And I, you're surprised. I, honestly, I shouldn't say it, it like it surprised me. But given the title and everything like that, it was kind of like, OK, is this going to be more of a childish one like Dexter's Lab or something like that that he's worked on before? But it being an adult swim show, it, it's got some very heavy kind of emotional, you know, it, kind of expectations mm-hmm. about it where they play with very emotional themes that, you know, it's not exactly like tug at your heartstrings emotional, like me, Earl and the dying girl, where, you know, you're just going, no, make it stop, please. But it still mm-hmm. has that subcontext of being a very driven kind of show and everything like that. And mm-hmm. the, the characters are fun. The writing is exactly what you expect from Gennady Tartofsky at this point. I, I got to say, mm-hmm. if you like his other works, uh, you got to watch it. Easily. It's a no brainer. It's a no brainer. OK, yeah, I um. I I go a lot of you, man, with the with the long um weekend ahead of me here. I, I gotta get back into primal. Cause um You do I gotta finish Yeah, I gotta finish that second season because of how much I love the first. But um okay, I got you. So I recently caught a uh a screening of uh The Little Mermaid, which I'm uh gonna upload a review for that to 8bitwaffles.com soon. Um so Okay, all right. Now I know this film was. <laughs> Listen, the Little Mermaid is not my thing. Okay, I, okay. I mean, we we all had cartoons we grew up on. Um, my my thing is if if you've seen an animated movie, you you've seen this movie. Mm-hmm. It just is live, just in live action format with a few added songs. Um, Haley Bailey does great in the lead role. I think she's a great Ariel. Uh, Javier Bardem is good. Uh, Melissa McCarthy is really great as Ursula. But it's it's kind of just the same movie in live action format. So is this more on the Aladdin side where it's like eh, it's an OK adaptation or is it more on the Lion King side where it's like, OK, this is clearly not the way that this movie should be adapted? I think I think it's I think it made well for a live action adapt adaptation. Um, I didn't see the Guy Ritchie Aladdin one, by the way, or the Donald Glover I'm sorry, the John Favreau. I, I was gonna say team. not the guy Richie, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, because Guy Richie directed Aladdin. Uh, yes, but not for Lion King. I mean, right, 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 right. John yeah. Favreau's Lion King. Yeah, I didn't see either of those. But what I what I can say about this movie is that it doesn't look bad for a live action adaptation. It just when you're not really changing that much stuff from the original story, it's just kind of unneeded. So it's not bad. It's just kind of pointless is what you're saying. It's it's the same movie. Okay. It's literally the same cartoon movie in live action format. If that's something you want to watch, great. Um, it's for the kids. Mm-hmm. If the kid if a kid has never grew up on the cartoon, he, if the kid doesn't know the song, you know, Under the Sea, this this will be a great introduction for them. Okay. If they grow up watching this movie. So it, it's for them. But for people who love the movie, I mean, I guess if you want to watch it for nostalgia reasons, it doesn't really elevate the original film. Okay. So you're basically going, it wasn't made for you. It was okay, but you understand who it was being made for. That's that's pretty much what I'm saying here. I uh, I went for my wife. I didn't go for me. She said, <laughs> she says, if you ever get free tickets to that, we're going. I'm like, all right, whatever. Like, you know, uh, there was nothing but mothers and 
uh, little kids in that movie, man. But uh, in that theater. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, yeah, I, I I thought it was okay. It wasn't bad. It wasn't horrible. It just wasn't for me. Yeah, and sadly, you just couldn't hide that email from your wife. She she managed to find it. <laughs> No, I just uh, I just know when the film came out, she'd be like, but I thought I thought you would have access to that. Oh, you know, it got lost in uh, spam. Right. Yeah. I I happened to have mermaid on spam detection during this time. I accidentally set that up. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Yeah. But it was okay. It was okay. But uh, so have you tried out the new uh, so HBO Max has turned into Max. Have you tried it out? Uh, I have. And I see no difference. Mm. It, it literally they changed the logo at the top right and well and, and you got more discovery shows too you got uh you got freaking 90 day fiance and all the rest right. of this stuff well a lot of that stuff started funneling in earlier when like discovery kind of started merging in with it but it, the new name didn't really change too much well, I didn't I didn't see Discovery with the last before it turned into Max. I kind of just saw nothing but, you know, HBO, Cartoon Network. Uh, what was that? The stuff you saw? TCM, Turner Classic Movies and stuff of that nature. See, that's still what all mine is, because that's still my recommended feed is everything from like Adult Swim and, you know, right. Cartoon Network and everything and like the HBO okay. shows. So I haven't seen any difference with it yet. Uh, but at the same okay. time, I've only launched it once since it moved over to max beyond that it's not different to me the one thing people point out though is that uh when you click on a movie or whatever uh (laughs) it doesn't go by director and writer anymore it goes by creators and it lists everybody from the producer the producer's mama then the (laughs) director then the the, uh cinematographer and stuff some people had our sticklers about that and i'm kind of like yeah I kind of miss it when it was detailed on like directed by, written by, produced by. Merging it all together like that is kind of it's kind of lazy. I'll be honest, I didn't notice that, but again, the only thing that I've watched on it was Unicorn Warriors Eternal from Jenny Tartofsky. Like that's literally yeah. the only thing I've watched since it moved to Max. <laughs> yeah, no, no, the content is still there, but what I'm saying is it's just the the layout of it, like little bits and details you're like, "Eh, I wouldn't have done that like that." Or Mm. Uh, I can see why people are getting a little pissed, but uh, time will tell if this interface uh, will be good. Yeah, I'll see if I start noticing it more after I start actually using it, because at the same time I was using my iPad for it when I was watching. So at the same time, Mm. I'm guessing that the iPad kind of interface didn't change too much or there's an update I haven't downloaded yet for it and will refuse to update until I need to. Probably, probably. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe it won't change, but, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it there. Uh, all right, folks, take it easy. It's been another great episode of DFV. Don't forget to uh, watch films. Don't forget to talk about films and, uh, have a great one.